Your film is now ready to be shown. Good morning. I'm Justin Hendricks, editor of Tech Policy Press, a nonprofit media and community venture intended to provoke new ideas, debate, and discussion at the intersection of technology and democracy. This week, the NYU Stern Center for Business and Human Rights released a report on YouTube that I helped write with the center's deputy director, Paul Barrett. YouTube is generally understood to have avoided the scrutiny of journalists, researchers, and lawmakers, at least relative to other social media platforms like Facebook. As Evelyn Dweck, a legal scholar concerned with content moderation issues and a past guest on this podcast, has said, it's almost as if YouTube is a kind of magic dust it uses to evade critique. But what we found in writing the report is that there is a cost to flying under the radar. To address some of the key issues, we have two segments in the podcast today. The first is a conversation with Paul Barrett, and the second with two of the sources we spoke to for the report, University of Washington researcher Kate Starbird and Mnemonic Associate Director of Advocacy, Dia Kayali. Let's jump right into my conversation with Paul Barrett. So, Paul, how many reports on social media has the Center for Business and Human Rights done to date? Yeah, I think it's 10 or 11 so far since I, since I got there in 2017. Well, I've been quite pleased to work with you on the last two. Uh, the last one, of course, focused on the issue of uh, political polarization and the relationship to social media, in particular to Facebook. YouTube is a different matter altogether, but I assume there are some parallels in this uh, space that you've begun to observe that are common across the platforms. Maybe we can Talk about those for a moment before we move to YouTube specifically. You know, I think one one of the themes that is persistent is um, that these businesses grew so quickly and to such an extraordinary scale, not just in the United States, but around the world, and that it was only really in the vicinity of 2016, 2017, that they began to think about um, the safeguards that ought to accompany all of uh, the activity that they were fostering. And I think that's that's persistent. That 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 is is one of the underlying conditions of this industry, that it, it grew up without a lot of introspection, and without a lot of outside oversight. To the contrary, outside celebration for the most part. And I'm not saying that some of the celebration uh, was unwarranted. I mean, they're new. They they were fun, and in some cases, they they you know they've contributed substantive uh, you know benefits to uh, our society in the United States and societies around the world. But we've seen in the last four or five years, with increasing clarity, uh, that there are side effects. And um, these side effects have affected our elections, uh, have affected our efforts to grapple with public health problems, and now I think present a a kind of ongoing threat uh, to our democracy. We were careful to kind of point out, though, that it's not all bad news. And I credit you with opening the report uh, with a kind of paradox in the context of Russia and thinking about YouTube's role there. Yeah, I think that's a great episode to examine because it does really show uh, the pluses and minuses of, of social media. On the plus side, you have this extraordinary situation where uh, as he has uh, prosecuted this uh, atrocious, brutal war, uh, Vladimir Putin has shut off all the major Western-based social media platforms contributing to the insulation of ordinary Russians from outside factual uh, accounts of what's going on in Ukraine. And the one exception to that uh, among the Western-based uh, platforms is YouTube, 
and Russians can still go to YouTube without any special trouble. They don't have to, you know, use an anonymizing service in some other country or have a VPN. Uh, and they can get uh, what the BBC is saying, what uh, CNN is saying. Uh, they can even watch channels sponsored by exiled um, allies of the famous uh, dissident Alexei Navalny, um, which is pretty extraordinary um, and shows you the power in a positive sense that social media can exert to uh, enable communication across borders and even across battle lines, literally. At the same time, it's crucial as you're pondering of why exactly Putin might have made this exception, you come to, I think, the two likely answers or an answer with two parts. The first is that YouTube is the most popular social media platform in Russia, which again is, is quite extraordinary. That's something that emanates from Silicon Valley would be so favored um, by Russian ordinary people, consumers, uh, users, whatever, whatever you want to call them. So that's, that's quite impressive. And, and again, shows you the potential reach of social media. A second reason is that in the years before the uh, February 2022 invasion uh, of Ukraine, YouTube was actually the main enabler of Putin's uh, propaganda outlets, specifically RT, formerly Russia Today, and Sputnik News, as those two outlets uh, built a following in the West. They did that primarily on YouTube, and YouTube was not just doing this passively, but was actually celebrating the success of Putin's propaganda machine, as illustrated by this episode in 2013, where YouTube sent uh, a vice president, uh, a guy who's still with the company, in fact, at a higher level, and sent him to an RT studio to congratulate RT on the air for reaching its billionth view at that point. And again, this is 2013, right before Putin grabbed uh, Crimea and uh, you know, initiated the uh, quasi-war in the east of Ukraine. In other words, these were the, the precursors to the war we're seeing now. Um, and I think that you know, that's an extraordinary misperception by YouTube as to what its role ought to have been, and, and really a terrible mistake to have allowed its platform uh, to be exploited in that fashion um, by the disinformation operatives um, of the Kremlin. So you have these experiences sitting one next to the other. Um, I think it's really impossible to kind of reconcile them in a rational you know, way, um, but they, they just show the, the positive side and then the negative underside of these vast social media operations um, that we're now also familiar with. I want to draw your attention specifically to the part of the report around monetizing content. And there's been some new empirical research on this subject, um, some you know new evidence that's come to light, and you know unfortunately just so many anecdotes that it's difficult to kind of contain them all. Um, but to the extent that you know you can summarize it in just a bit, you know this segment I I feel like really talks about the sort of mixture of motivations that some of the most problematic content creators on YouTube have, sometimes political motivation, uh, sometimes, of course, financial motivation, and sometimes it's very difficult to tell the difference. Yeah, to untangle it. I agree with everything you just said. And of course, we see that not necessarily on YouTube, um, but you see that uh, you know, played out at the very highest levels of American politics, where our former president, Donald Trump, you know, absolutely routinely mingles his politics um, with his money-making uh, efforts. Um, so we, we have a, a leading model. One of the features of YouTube that makes it distinctive is its very robust 
um, partnership program, which allows creators who achieve just a, a very modest number of uh, watch hours and um, subscribers on a channel to apply for a partnership whereby they can divide advertising revenue with the company. And it's not like they get 10%, they, they can get you know, around, around half of the revenue. So that if they, if you build a successful channel um, with tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands of subscribers, you can make a living conveying whatever it is you want to convey uh, on your YouTube channel. And this has proved uh, over time, as a number of scholars have observed, to be very attractive to kind of the alt-right crowd um, who are successful at at building these seemingly maybe small, but still distinctive and valuable uh, audiences on scores of uh, channels. Now, YouTube has responded to people misusing their platform by uh, saying, well, we will demonetize you. We will uh, prevent you from running some ads or all ads, et cetera, in kind of a graduated uh, procedure whereby your ability to make money uh, diminishes. You know, this is seen as as a way that YouTube can kind of keep a lid on things and exert a certain amount of uh, deterrence against extremism uh, and other highly divisive content. The new research you're referring to is done by people at Cornell Tech, and they've found there's now been a response to YouTube's use of the stick in the carrot and stick process, a response to demonetization, and the Cornell people call it alternative monetization, where people who are sponsoring the channels aware that YouTube might uh, cut off their advertising dollars are now pointing their subscribers to other sites um, where they can either uh, buy merchandise or buy memberships that allow them to see uh, exclusive material. Like a, you may point them to a site that says, if you pay $10, you can now see this podcast. Or if you pay $100, you can see a year's worth of podcasts that nobody else is seeing. Or you can interact with people in a, in a live feed. Or you can pay a small additional fee. Uh, and this is on YouTube for something called a super chat, whereby you can have your comments elevated in the, in the stream of comments during a live chat. And all of these things are, are quite vibrant and happening. Uh, and the Cornell tech people point out that this may signal that the demonetization tool is already beginning to falter because the people who it, YouTube intends to discipline are finding, are very quickly figuring out how to game the system and, and monetize in other, uh, other ways. If perhaps we're having this conversation uh, with a kind of sandwich of uh, good and bad about YouTube's uh, practices over the last bit, mm-hmm. you do focus in on the violative view rate and some progress that YouTube has made, at least statistically, on handling uh, content you know, that is problematic. And yet there's some problems with the metric itself. Right. And this is uh, very much worth talking about because the, the fact remains that even as platforms, not just YouTube, have moved toward uh, disclosing some more aggregate data about what's going on on the platform, they, they are still holding back uh, on, on crucial numbers, basically, that make the data they're disclosing much less valuable than it otherwise would be. The violative view rate is a perfect example. The company says that we've been telling you how many videos we take down. We've been telling you how many channels we take down. Now we're going to give you a, a, a new metric that tells you um, how many views of harmful material, material that violates our standards, 
uh, actually take place because the actual views are what's important, not just the, the raw takedown numbers. Okay, I, on face value, I say, okay, I'm interested. So they, they give you a, a, a number, uh, it's a percentage, and they have calculated this percentage by uh, manually going through a data set of uh, videos that are posted on the site and determining how many of them um, have basically gotten past the content moderation system, both the human system and the automated part of the system. And there the videos are to be counted up, even though they violate the rules. Um, and you get a, uh, a percentage out of that. The percentage is quite small and the percentage has been uh, diminishing. Now the direction is good, no argument with that. The, the, the percentage of violative uh, views going down. Um, but the problem with the percentage is, is that we don't know the number against which you, you apply the percentage. So that if you apply the percentage as is, tends to be the case to a number like 10,000, it comes out to be like, oh, only 14 or 15 or 16 views of bad stuff. Okay, that sounds de minimis and like a success. But of course, 10,000 is totally arbitrary. YouTube operates at the order of magnitude of billions, billions of hours of video being watched. So since they won't tell us what the larger universe of videos they're talking about, in my view, we really don't know what to do with this small and encouraging sounding percentage. And that takes you back to the other numbers, the takedown numbers. And similarly, we don't know what to do with those. The numbers sound big in the abstract, you know, millions and millions and millions. But the, the problem is that's the numerator of a fraction and we don't know what the denominator is. That's what's coming down, but we don't know what the larger pool is. And so you really, in the end, uh, don't know what to make of any of that. And I think it's uh, ultimately not helpful um, because it gives the company the opportunity to say, see, we're disclosing, so stop bothering us. But if you, if you disclose halfway, it's almost as bad as saying nothing. One of the things that I was pleased we were able to do, of course, in this report is focus on these issues as they apply outside the U.S. And we looked a little bit specifically at three countries, uh, at India, at Brazil, at Myanmar, each in their own kind of separate ways, facing uh, political turmoil and kind of struggling um, with problems like disinformation, you know, misogyny, ethnic and, and, and racial uh, strife. You know, it's just interesting to see the extent to which, you know, YouTube plays a role as a powerful library and platform in each of those cases. For quirky reasons that we discussed in the report, YouTube just ten has tended to date to be kind of an afterthought in these kinds of discussions. Um, not among the people on the ground, the real experts, and not among the academics who really crunch the numbers on a day-in, day-out basis, um, but in, in the broader policy uh, conversation. So, for example, you know, we know all about Facebook's role uh, as a tool in the oppression of the Rohingya Muslims and the ethnic cleansing um, that went on there, but we know much less about the fact that YouTube is present there and um, is being used by supporters of the, the military a junta to cheer on, in this case, the military's return to power after having been out of power for a couple of years. Over in India, the issue is largely along the Hindu-Muslim line and uh, along the gender line. So YouTube, which is an extraordinary force in India, 450 million users. It is YouTube's largest market. And YouTube is, by some measures, the most popular social media platform in the world. So your 450 million people uh, checking YouTube on a regular basis, 
uh, and the governing in power Hindu nationalist government and its regional representatives are on a regular basis using YouTube uh, to afflict Muslims who they accuse of basically every sin and they attribute almost every uh, ill in Indian society to their hated foes, the Muslims. Um, and a lot of this plays out uh, on YouTube. And then there's a big problem with misogyny there, with it being almost routine for young men to uh, set up channels on YouTube where they uh, attack women, threaten to rape women, hold facetious auctions of, of, in this case, Muslim women whose images they grab from public sources, put up on the website, and then they sponsor this you know, ugly mock auction for the woman. And this, of course, generates uh, all kinds of very nasty and violence-tinged uh, commentary. And you know, back in Silicon Valley, I'm sure the people at YouTube are, have a lot of regret that their platform is misused this way. But the problem is, is they should have thought about this problem in advance in a proactive way now they need to do a lot of catching up um, because they are having a great deal of trouble figuring out how to um, filter out this hate speech and religiously oriented animosity. And there are so many different anecdotes in the report. Uh, I hope folks will check it out. Um, you know, we even reference one particular creator uh, who was part of a sort of trend of misogynistic rants that had become popular on YouTube, and that individual who achieved the threshold of 800,000 subscribers, received a Silver Creator Award from YouTube uh, for being able to grow his channel so successfully. So, um, yeah. you know, concerning stuff when you look at it uh, at the anecdotal level and then also when you kind of zoom out at the, at the full level. I, I think one of the things that I kind of concluded in this is that, you know, on some level, this is just not it's not healthy for YouTube to fly under the radar, that there's a, a kind of healthy um, evolution to policy and practices that comes from scrutiny, um, and that perhaps the company really needs to figure out how to open itself up. We, we both come from a, a background working in different aspects of journalism, so this is our reflex. But I, I completely agree that in the long run, profit-making is only strengthened if a company um, has full awareness and takes of and, and takes responsibility for not just the main effects that it intends to have on its markets, but also the side effects that it, it may not have set out to impose on these markets, but which become an unescapable aspect of their activity. Um, if you're going to make products in, in a factory and there's a smokestack out back belching out pollution, you can't just brag about the, the nice products going in the showroom. You have to take responsibility for the pollution as well. And, and that's a uh, a rough analogy for what we see with uh, social media. Well, I will commend folks to the report because that, of course, brings up the question of regulation and what government's role is in potentially putting some, uh, you know, controls on the smokestack, belching the pollution out the back. And uh, we, we get into that as well uh, with some specific recommendations. But Paul, thank you so much for the opportunity to work with you on this again. And thanks for joining me today. I'll thank you for um, your participation, which is improved our work uh, immeasurably and uh, appreciate this chance to talk about it with you today. If you are enjoying this podcast, consider subscribing. Go to techpolicy.press slash podcast 
and subscribe via your favorite podcast service. While you're there, sign up for our newsletter. I should mention that one paper referenced in that discussion with Paul Barrett on characterizing alternative monetization strategies on YouTube was written by Moore Naman and Yiqing Hua, two Cornell Tech researchers I've had the pleasure of teaching with in the past, as well as EPFL's Manuel Horta Ribeiro, who spoke to us for this report, his colleague Robert West of EPFL, and Thomas Ristenpart, also of Cornell Tech. Check it out. Next up, a conversation with two individuals who closely observe the platforms and the work they do, focused respectively on mis- and disinformation and the documentation of human rights abuses. Let's jump right in. Kate Starbird, I'm an associate professor at the University of Washington in the Department of Human-Centered Design and Engineering, and I am a co-founder and director of the Center for Informed Public. Dia Kayali, I'm associate director of advocacy at Mnemonic, which is the parent organization for Syrian Archive, Yemeni Archive, Sudanese Archive, and now Ukrainian Archive. So I want to talk to you both today about how YouTube figures into your work and the ways in which uh, you kind of consider YouTube in the broader social media and information ecosystem. And Kate, I thought I'd start with you. You study disinformation, you study collective behavior online. When you think of YouTube as a phenomenon uh, on the internet, what are the first things that come to mind? It's an interesting question. I think I first have to say how we encounter YouTube because we don't study YouTube first in our, in our particular research group. We actually encounter YouTube through digital trace data from other platforms. And so we'll be looking at for instance, Twitter data, which is easily collectible, we get a lot of that data. And when we're studying disinformation campaigns, whether it's a disinformation campaign against the white helmets in Syria or disinformation around the 2020 election and everything in between, um, we continuously see YouTube as one of the most cited domains in all of the data sets we have about that, that encounter disinformation. So it becomes how I see YouTube is, is it's used as a resource um, where these, this content is stored and then it's mobilized elsewhere, often again and again and again at, at opportunistic times um, for disinformation campaigns. And so my perspective it, it sees it as this sort of this resource. And I think, you know, in order to, to see it differently, I think it actually serves other roles and, and people are going there directly and doing other kinds of things. But that's almost harder, harder to study. But at the very least, we can see it being, you know, we can see these, this content this misleading content, strategically misleading content that's on YouTube repeatedly mobilized in other spaces. Before I move to Dia, let me just ask you, in terms of why researchers like yourself don't as often include YouTube uh, in your work, you've pointed to, of course, just the complexity and the expense and the trouble of computing you know, vast amounts of video. Do you sort of uh, hope to get around that at some point? Are you are you working on that? Uh, do you think you'll bring YouTube more into your research as we go along? I think this is one of the grand challenges right now for um, research and social media generally, but um, disinformation specifically is to is to develop more methods, both of collection, but even more importantly, of sort of how we analyze video content. It's just a, a much more intensive process, and we don't have the same kinds of tools that we can use to sort of you know, one thing to automate it, right? So we have some automated tools we can use that are not great, but they can help us with with textual data. But even in our research, which is a lot of qualitative work, a video takes much longer to analyze than a hundred tweets, right? And so there is this 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 real gap in 
methods, in in technological assistance for those methods, but just in kind of like thinking about how do we how do we analyze that content? Certainly, that's something our our research group is trying to do, um, and, and we're working on. But it's it's a challenge, I think, for the whole field um, and for the larger field of computational social science. In a human rights context, you were analyzing massive amounts of video and looking for uh, evidence of war crimes and other problems that uh, your your groups are concerned with. How do you do that right now? Is is it you know computational human? The analysis that we do is a mix of both. We are using object recognition technology that has actually been trained on our archives, and I think it's going to be particularly useful in Ukraine because it was trained on content from Syria, and so it's able to, for example, find a specific type of munition. However, the vast majority of our work is still done by people. And, you know, I think there's interesting parallels there between content moderation, where we find that at the end of the day, it's really people that can go in and look at all the specific pieces of information that are required to actually put together a meaningful uh, investigation. You know, we want to create investigations that are helpful, that are looking at specific events or specific perpetrators. And that requires a lot of people time. So, in the end, really, uh, a lot of our researchers doing the same thing as content moderators are doing, which is trying to understand the context, um, looking at oftentimes, you know, pretty graphic or disturbing content and putting it into our archives in this sort of verified format. As the two of you sort of think about YouTube's responsibility in your space, um, either potentially, Kate, to make uh, more information available to researchers or uh, Dia, in your case, to make some workflow easier for uh, the human rights observers that you're working with. How do you interact with them at present? Or how do you think of uh, the company's sort of how it comports itself towards outside research? I think that's a complicated question. There are researchers that seem to have access to some data in, we've applied and sometimes just run into a little bit of a wall and, and not, to be honest, we haven't made a great effort to move that wall. Um, because we we have tended to, to focus on content that is publicly available and not try to gain advantage over other researchers in other kinds of ways by getting special access. Um, there are kinds of methods, you know, there are methods that that are very sort of computational intensive and and expensive to get users to sign up and different kinds of audit studies that are really incredible that I've seen. But in terms of like YouTube providing an API that gives access in a way that that we can collect data at scale and, and do the kinds of analyses that are comparable to what we do at Twitter that just doesn't that doesn't exist and um, or at least I don't know it I don't know that that exists and we haven't been able to to create that kind of pipeline for our work and have, and have tried a couple times and run into barriers but I, I think there's a lot of, of, of room for additional transparency and for building apis especially for the content that's in theory public right it's in theory public and searchable and it would be valuable for our research and for transparency for YouTube and I think for healthier societies in general if they would provide, you know, better access. But by not providing that access, they have been able to remain a little bit under the radar. So there's a value for them of not providing that transparency because it's allowed them to avoid criticism. Yeah, I mean, unfortunately, we've also had the same experience that YouTube is really not 
They don't have any sort of special access. Um, and, and you can really contrast it to Twitter that not only does Twitter have its academic access, it now just announced this Twitter content moderation research consortium where they're going to expand access. And they are doing it in a responsible way. You know, I think that there's sometimes concern, rightfully so, about sharing too much information, sharing information that could put people at risk. But Twitter is not just giving that information out to anyone. And uh, YouTube doesn't need to just give that information out to anybody either. They can have some process. But, you know, I think that their, the, the lack of access to their data really reflects just their general sort of personality as a company, which is, you know, they're part of Google. Since they've been part of Google, they just don't really engage. They don't engage with civil society. They don't engage with researchers. They do engage with governments, but even that is not on the same level as other companies. And, you know, we have, we've tried very hard to call attention to them and it, it just doesn't stick. Uh, the media attention on them just doesn't stick. We've had an easier time with Google than with YouTube data. Um, in fact, I've had that, have that outreach from Google to look at certain kinds of like search results. But I think that's because they know that they've made some adjustments to their search results and the research results turn out to be, you know, fairly decent. They, they still have problems, but the kinds of toxicities that we see on YouTube aren't manifesting on Google. And, and so that that's interesting that they're, they're more willing to f- provide transparency on a, uh, on their product that is less problematic. Yeah. I mean, I, I think maybe even part of that is because you know, a lot of civil society finds ourselves engaging when you're working on content moderation issues, you find yourself engaging with the human rights teams. And the human rights team that we're talking about that is not at YouTube, they're at Google, which is in and of itself, just a little bit bizarre when you think about how huge Google is and how many products we're talking about that, that Google has. Uh, that YouTube doesn't have a really dedicated human rights team is incredibly concerning. Uh, but I do think that that's maybe part of the reason why that, that data is easier to access. And also, I think I just really want to emphasize something you said, which is they're more willing to share information where it shows them in a positive or favorable light. One of the things I wanted to kind of get to a little bit is uh, just around business model. I and mean, we know that there have been some improvements to uh, YouTube on a platform level. Uh, it seems like the kind of you know rabbit hole problem or filter bubble problem that people talked about uh, some years ago, to some extent, has been addressed. It seems to have been uh, engineered uh, out of the platform in a way that is is useful. And yet, there's still this issue of volume, just so much volume, and also the ability to kind of uh, you know for actors that may have wrong intentions or bad intentions to to monetize their efforts uh, across the platform. How, how do you all think of the sort of business model of YouTube vis-a-vis other social platforms and the way that it kind of corresponds to the problems that you observe on the platform? I think that we see a lot of the same issues in terms of the business model just being based on collecting people's information and targeting them with ads. And actually, I uh, just very anecdotally, I certainly feel like I see more ads on YouTube than I used to. That being said, something to keep in mind is it is a video sharing platform and that presents its own unique issues. And so, you know, we're not just talking about, they, they can't just, for example, throw relatively simple, if we're talking about English, natural language processing out there and sort of find what it is they're looking for, whether it's content moderation or 
even potentially putting together sets of data for researchers in a way that, you know, sort of anonymizes it. So video just on many levels has always presented unique challenges. And I think that that's part, maybe part of the issue. So maybe Kate, I'll I'll kind of put this to you. Um, You know, you studied obviously the 2020 election cycle very closely and uh, just put out a huge data set uh, around Twitter, where I'm sure YouTube featured as a common URL in the results that you've collected there around uh, the big lie. To what extent do you feel like there's a relationship between commercial and or business interests in pushing disinformation or uh, using the platform to grift or to attract uh, paying subscribers, things of that nature? Do you see a relationship between between those things and, and, and some of the phenomena? I haven't spent a lot of time on that question. I have to be honest. I think when we look at these phenomena that we study, we sort of look at like, okay, let's, let's look at this disinformation campaign. Let's look at the, the contours of it. Who's sharing what? We, we kind of get in, into like, you know, talking about what the motivations might be. For something like the big lie and even around COVID-19 stuff, it, it's sometimes difficult to disentangle political motives from financial motives because they kind of go hand in hand. And even for those that aren't financially motivated, they may be reputationally motivated for other reasons. So my my sense of, of these spaces, and probably more so for COVID-19 than for election 2020 stuff, is that most people are motivated by both. And, and that's why they're creating content. They want attention. They want to be able to, to monetize that attention if they can. Um, for some, it's more about belonging to a political community, but for others, it's, it's, it's just as much about making, making money or making a name for themselves. And so, but it's often like hard to boil, boil a single channel or a single entity's account down to one motivation or another, because they're often entangled. Do you have anything on that? When you look out across the world, some of the communities that Mnemonic is working in, you know, you all participated in that uh, letter recently with uh, other human rights groups that were concerned both about the loss of evidence uh, from a site like YouTube, but also concerned with uh, disinformation as a problem. Do you see a kind of, uh, the kind of like relationship to commercial interests as, as a piece of it? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, all you have to do is look at how Facebook has changed in recent years. We know that people see more and more pleasant posts, more posts from their friends and family. And uh, this was part of a a sort of conscious effort on the part of Meta because they were responding to critique. It wasn't because, you know, they wanted to be a nice, happy influence in the world. It was because their business model wasn't working out as well for them. So it still obviously involves a ton of data collection, but it maybe involves less of promoting inflammatory content, whereas YouTube, you know, there's still so much opacity around that. That being said, I think that we really do see different platforms used differently in different places. So for the Syrian conflict, YouTube was really sort of the go-to place. And I think it is still, interestingly, it's still the place where people who are, are purposefully documenting human rights violations go to post their content. Whereas we find that Facebook, Instagram, Twitter is sort of on the, on the line, but now TikTok is emerging as a source. You know? So we, again, see not only the different personality of the companies, but also the different personality of the people that are using them and sort of the different objectives. And it really does worry me that so many of the issues that we brought up in that letter 
around making sure that they actually know how to, for example, moderate content in Arabic, there's just been not even a discussion with YouTube. And so I think that, you know, we do still see, I recently talked to some of the people that manage our different archives, and we are still seeing the same level of content removal on YouTube, despite having been in conversation with them since 2017. It's, it's been five years now of saying, hey, you are deleting essential human rights documentation. And we really have not seen very many changes or even any willingness to change. Kate, is that the flip side of the problem you see on disinformation on some level that in many cases, these companies have their policies, you know, the policies are correct. They, they, they may want to limit, you know, false claims of, of victory in an election or uh, may want to limit certain types of COVID uh, misinformation that we know is particularly harmful to human health. Uh, and yet it just doesn't happen, right? Uh, at scale, uh, is there still a major moderation challenge? I mean, would would more human moderation, perhaps more expert human moderation, help uh, maybe on both sides of this and the preservation of material that is necessary for things like investigating human rights abuses and on the flip side, uh, potentially to uh, remove or label or otherwise contend with potentially harmful content? Yes, yeah, is an interesting question. I think, you know, clearly... There's a technical issue of, of moderation. I say technical, like, the, you know, doesn't mean that it has to be solved by machines. And in fact, I don't think it can be. I think it is about hiring uh, more human moderators, but it also has a certain level of training, right? Because it's not that there's not a person moderating some of these things. It's that they don't quite know how to differentiate. But also there's, there's also something to be said about YouTube recognizing that it's not just a social media platform. It's serving as a storage place in you can actually, I mean, I can imagine they could put up functionality where content can still exist for its owner to see and to, it, it, so it's not like completely taken down and it can be used in, in other kinds of ways that it's not able to be mobilized on these other platforms. So where YouTube becomes problematic right now often is that the content gets mobilized in a, in a Facebook group or gets mobilized on Twitter and, and spread widely around certain kinds of things. And they could still have these these this content be stored there for the the owner and not let it be mobilized on these other platforms. So there's other things I think YouTube could do um, that that's not just you know taking down content, especially when, for these hard cases where the content may be problematic, but it's also important to keep for historical reasons and other other reasons. Yeah, and just to follow on to that, uh, I think there are many creative solutions on the other end as well with human rights documentation. For example, you know, they, if you look at Google's privacy policy and you try to understand exactly how long they keep content after they've deleted it, it is quite unclear. They do actually have a bit more information than Meta publicly available. So they say that if you delete something, it could take up to six months to be permanently removed from their backup servers, et cetera, et cetera. But there is a real lack of clarity. So Initially, at least just some transparency would be helpful, but also uh, something that we hear from all companies, including Google, is that they can't preserve content even from a place like Ukraine, even when we know there's all of these ongoing investigations because they don't want to hold on to things forever. Uh, there's GDPR concerns. There's very real privacy and security concerns, but they could certainly ask for consent from users that, you know, if we, if we delete this or, you know, if you make it private, can we hold on to it? And many of the people we work with would be happy to check, check a box that says, yes, hold on to it. So that's one potential solution because 
I don't want to entirely throw my hands up about content moderation getting better, but I think we need to be realistic that it's just going to continue to be a problem. And the other thing is for a lot of these edge cases, particularly where there's some automated tool involved, they really should be giving people the ability to make changes, to clarify the context, and then get it back up in a format that for human rights documentation, not for misinformation, but for human rights documentation would be shareable and usable. And we do see, I mean, this is one of the difficulties. We see a lot of the same patterns with link sharing and with the the travel of information with human rights documentation, especially because people get kicked off in the same way. And so they're moving from platform to platform. So again, I think they could just be a lot more creative and working more directly with civil society would help them do that. I myself uh, published a video shortly uh, after January 6th, 2021, uh, journalistic video, a kind of compilation of uh, some of the things that had happened at the Capitol that day uh, for a piece we published at Just Security. And uh, it was struck down uh, very quickly from YouTube. And I was unable to reach anyone there or ultimately to get, uh, you know, kind of positive review uh, or to address uh, whatever the problem was. But the kind of stated problem that I got in response was that it was spam content. It it does seem very problematic. And I'm sure there are many people that will listen to this that have had a similar experience. You mentioned Facebook um, and the kind of comparison to Facebook. Clearly, Facebook's had a rough several years, certainly a rough year since the various disclosures from first Sophie Zhang and then from Francis Haugen. How aware are you of the kind of research apparatus inside of Google that focuses on YouTube? I mean, Facebook kind of, you know, got shot in the foot because it created a large research entity uh, inside of its own walls in order to study potential harms of its platform. To what extent are you aware of any similar effort inside of Google or at YouTube? Yeah. I don't know <laughs> my awareness. I, I, I mean, Google's got a, cu- a couple of different things. They have Google research and they, they, they conduct research, not always on Google products, but um, they have Google research. Um, there's Jigsaw, which is associated that seems to be doing some really interesting things around media literacy in terms of like auditing their own platform and what, the, what kinds of research they're, they're conducting on YouTube. I have no idea. I'm always I always have an assumption that things are going on because, you know, uh, how would they be able to to make some of the, the positive changes we think we, they seem to have made around recommendations and, and things without having research being done there. But I, I guess I, I can't say that I have a good good sense of what exactly is there and what the structure is. But I, I we have to understand that there's research being done. Um, and I imagine it's coming from a couple of different parties within the larger Google umbrella. Dia, maybe I'll ask you that question, you know, slightly differently. I mean, just when you think about YouTube and, and Google in comparison to perhaps Facebook and the uh, relationships you have, you've mentioned this somewhat, but the relationships you have on human rights issues, um, how does it kind of compare? Is it sort of best in class? Is it a, a struggling to keep up? Um, how do you think about it in, in relation to the other platforms? But trying to pick which platform is best in class is like trying to pick from, uh, I don't know, a group of preteens that is just starting to hit puberty and completely unruly. Uh, <laughs> um, that being said, you know, I, I think I, and I, I apologize because I know I'm repeating myself. These are things that I've said quite often publicly that uh, the media really just loves to talk about meta. I think one of meta's liabilities, to be very honest, is actually Mark Zuckerberg, right? He's really easy 
to caricature. He's really easy to make memes out of. Um, he's done a very poor job when talking to Congress. Uh, I, I was just rewatching some of his testimony and, you know, he really does look like a robot. And so I think because he's been the public face of Meta, um, that's one reason why reporters really like to focus on him. I think that, you know, Google is just an older and more mature company and knows how to manage the press better. Uh, I also think, you know, if you look at what happened with Timnit Gebru and with that entire team and the way that they were treated as they were leaving, I think that we can sort of extrapolate from that, that, you know, I've been begging people inside Google, like, you know, we, we need what you know, we need more information about what is going on. The Facebook papers were a treasure trove for civil society. Uh, I'm one of the lucky members of civil society that did get access to them. And they just completely confirmed things that I've been saying for years. You know, I refer to them regularly, especially the, the pieces of the Facebook papers about Arabic language content moderation. So, you know, I think that Meta is just an easier target for a variety of reasons. I think the leaks have really helped us. Um, I think the the media and also, frankly, like, U.S. Congress pays more attention to them. I mean, we also have to remember that Google has government contracts. Google has relationships with the governments. I think there's a lot of reasons why Google just kind of gets gets away with it, really, at the end of the day. Again, I really suspect that anybody working there is probably incredibly terrified to be a whistleblower. They're just not going to get away with it. That being said, you know, there is legal support for for whistleblowers. And, you know, I don't know if that's going to change. But yeah, I just think for a variety of those reasons, it's been really, really hard to engage with them. And also, finally, this last point that Meta does now have an entire structure. If you, you can just look at the resourcing, Meta has a human rights team. They have regional teams. So there's human rights specialists. But there's also, you know, if you have an issue in Arabic speaking world, then you can go talk to one of their Arabic speaking staff who focuses on that region and and you know, you can get a little bit more into the policy. And actually, sorry, I said, I know that was the last point, but one more thing, I do think that the oversight board also has helped to sort of expose and reinforce points that civil society has been making. And yeah, I think that that it has helped, even though we still have seen Meta be really resistant to making some of the policy changes. So I hope that I'm not giving Meta any ideas here. Like, please don't be more like Google. (laughs) We really want you to continue on the track of making staff available to us and at least being willing to make small policy changes. You know, I think that Meta is really a good example of harm reduction in terms of policy advocacy, that um, we haven't been able to impact the ultimate business model or some of the biases there, but we have been able to reduce some of the harm that's caused by the platform. Whereas YouTube, I just know, really um, not so much. It seems to me there's like three dimensions here of transparency. One is transparency for outsiders to be able to figure out what's going on into these platforms, um, whether that's journalists or academics. A second piece of transparency is that the platforms themselves would be giving some signals and saying, you know, here are some regular updates. We know <laughs> Facebook and others have tried that and it's just been, you know, really low quality, but to kind of think about what kinds of things they should be, they should be sharing. And a third part of the transparency is just to let the world know what their structures are <laughs> for looking at these things. And so that we have a better understanding of what kinds of internal research that they're doing and not doing um, for years, I had assumptions that the platforms were doing certain kinds of research and come to find out that they really just weren't um, or or they're just not they just weren't talking about it. 
Um, but it was really, really kind of surprising to me initially. And now, and now I've lowered my expectations, but it would be good to see sort of transparency on all three of those dimensions. If you had the CEO of YouTube uh, here on the call um, and you could make a, a single suggestion about how YouTube should think about its responsibility to the issues that you're concerned about, what do you think you'd say if you, if you just were in an elevator? With Susan for a moment or two, what what would you what would you say? I'm not sure I could come up with a single suggestion because it seems to me there's so many dimensions that that are broken and that need some improvement. If I had that minute, I think I would just I would just do my best to describe how problematic the content on YouTube has been in this in the things that we study, um, how how influential that that content has been, and how problematic it's been and and kind of drive home the role that YouTube plays, not as a direct, not for people just going to YouTube and looking at content, but how that content spreads throughout the whole information ecosystem and, and use that opportunity to, to highlight that, um, to, to list one or, one or even two <laughs> solutions. I mean, it, it's just a long list of things I think need improvement. Yeah, it's tough to think of one, but I would start by saying, Susan, you need a YouTube human rights team that actually has authority to make changes based on their conversations with civil society, that is appropriately staffed, that has regional experts, and that can start by providing us with an organogram of the company and how the different pieces of the company, not just YouTube, but expanding onto Google, what are the different relationships between staff, engineers, research at the company, but, you know, start by actually talking to us and talking to us regionally specifically and YouTube specifically. Dia, Kate, thank you so much for speaking to me today. Thank you for having me on. Always great to talk to you. That's it for this episode. I hope you'll send us your feedback. You can write to me at justin at techpolicy.press or find us on Twitter at Tech Policy Press. Thanks to my co-founder, Brian Jones. Thanks to my guests. And thank you for listening. Tech Policy Press.